there was an archaeologist in New York City that was doing some excavation, and he dug down 100 feet and found copper wire. And so he deduced that New York had an extensive communication system 100 years ago. Well, not to be undone, an archaeologist in California dug down 200 feet and found copper wire, and he deduced that California had an intricate network of communications 100 years before New York City. Well, Bubba from Texas dug down 30 feet in his backyard and found nothing. And he deduced that Texas had already gone wireless 300 years ago. <laughs> all right. So thank you, Joel. All right. Well, I'm honored to be here today with my amazing wife of 41 years, Joanne. We, um, we celebrated our anniversary last week, and that's us in uh, Southern California, so I love you. I thank you. Yeah. She is an incredible gift to me, my best friend, and the one the Holy Spirit uses most often to speak to me. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I could say something, but I've been working on pausing and pondering and praying, so I'm just going to move right along. I want to thank Pastor Chris for allowing me to share uh, a message today as we continue our series entitled The Nine on the Fruit of the Spirit. You know, I love this series because the fruit of the Spirit is not just a list of good character traits. It is literally the oil that our bodies were designed to run on. And it's the same source. I want you to get this. The fruit of the Spirit is the same source that Jesus perfectly applied to his everyday life, allowing him to live without sin, and it's given to each of us freely by the Holy Spirit. Many of you may have been here in December of 2014 when I shared a message entitled Understanding the Value of Suffering. It was a message to help all of us understand that sufferings, difficulties, problems, and challenges, and even failure are good for us because they cause us to cry out for and depend on God. Last spring, I delivered a, the second message in what I now know to be a series of messages entitled Understanding the Value of Patience. You see, without patience, when we're going through difficult situations, we're we are almost always will resort to implementing our plan instead of waiting on God's timing for him to implement his plan. So today I want to continue the journey that God's had me on, a journey that helped me realize that my family and I have been under a calculated spiritual attack of the enemy since April of 2014. An assault that in many ways has affected my family, my finances, my business, my marriage, and my faith. I tell you this because it's in this place of conflict and spiritual warfare that God has revealed these messages to me in a specific order for me to apply to my own battle and to share with the body of Christ. So the message I want to share with you today is entitled, Understanding the Value of Peace. 
Now, I usually don't do this, but I'm just going to tell you, this message is the only one that, as far as I know, that has a subtitle, and I'm going to tell you it now, and I'll explain it to you at the end of the message. But the subtitle is, Where's My Pillow? Now, for some of you that are tired, that's not an, an approval to go to sleep, but you'll have to stay with me. Let me just tell you, the true source of shalom or peace is to experience the presence of God. God's response to Gideon's confession of inadequacy was not a promise of great personal power or wisdom to lead, nor did God assure Gideon that there would be an unlimited military resources or a strategic plan against his enemy. Rather, God simply promised Gideon that regardless of the overwhelming odds that he was facing, that God would be with him. The Lord said to Gideon in, in Judges 6, 16, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Gideon and the people of Israel had to learn that God's promise of his presence was sufficient for whatever challenges they would encounter. So as we talk about understanding the value of peace, let me begin with these two key verses. The first one comes from Isaiah 23, 6, where it says, You keep in perfect peace. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. If there's a perfect peace, there is an imperfect peace. And I'm going to talk about the imperfect peace in a minute, but I want to, talk to you that, tell you that God has not just promised you peace. He's promised you perfect peace to all those whose thoughts, whose thoughts are fixed on you. John 14, 27, Jesus says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled or afraid. You see, there are three types of peace that we need in this life. We need internal peace, we need external peace, and we need eternal peace. And that's what Jesus means when he says, my peace. You see, health is physical peace. But health is not stagnation. Health is the perfection of physical activity that we call external peace. Virtual, virtue is moral peace, but virtue is not innocence. Virtue is the perfection of moral activity, what we would call internal peace. And holiness is spiritual peace. But holiness is not quietness. Holiness is intense spiritual activity, what we would call eternal peace. I want you to think about it for a moment. Why would God send us the Holy Spirit who is called the comforter for us to be comfortable? You see, it's in our uncomfortability that the Holy Spirit meets us, not in our posh lives where everything is predictable. You see, vulnerability leads to availability and availability leads to opportunity and opportunities lead us to a dependence on the presence of God in our lives, in our families, and in our circumstances. You see, even when there's no peace around us, there can always be peace within us. To rest in the Lord is the perfection of inward activity. Have you ever flown in a plane in the middle of a storm? I have. Cups spilled, overhead compartments burst open, people screamed all around. I've never been one to be afraid of flying, but in those times, even the stoutest among us buckle up and pay attention. Well, the story is told of a flight that hit some unusual turbulence, tossing the airplane side to side in a strong gust of wind. Clouds looked like, more like dark pieces of coal and lightning struck nearby, and an eerie silence settled over all the passengers in between their shrieks and screams. No one felt safe. 
except for one small child. He sat there preoccupied with his notebook and pen, drawing a picture of himself climbing a tree on a sun-filled day. To look at him, you, would have, you never would have guessed that he was on the plane in the middle of a storm. A passenger nearby noticed him and wondered, how could he feel so calm? So she asked the young boy, aren't you afraid? He just looked up from his paper for a moment, smiled and said, no, ma'am. Why not, the lady prodded, her fingers gripping her seat intently, because my daddy's the pilot. <laughs> he answered matter-of-factly and then returned to his drawing. You see, sometimes when life is out of control, it's knowing who sits at the controls that ought to usher us a heart of peace. You see, the word peace gets used a lot, causing us often to misunderstanding its meaning. In the Middle East, peace stands for something more like a truce bringing a temporary reprieve from war. To a young mother, it could stand for that hour when the young children take their naps. Peace means different things to many people, but the peace Jesus offers is like no other. His peace produces internal calm in the midst of external chaos. We experience his peace when we trade our fears from the storm for a healthy fear and reverence for him. When we shift our gaze from the sea to the Savior, peace ensues. Paul told us to respond to God's peace the same way the storm responded to Jesus that night on the Sea of Galilee. Paul told us in Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God, the peace of the Messiah, control your hearts. The Greek word used here for control means to umpire. Now, we all know what an umpire does. He declares the way things are. Whatever he says, that's the way it is. A ball, a strike, an out, a run. Whatever he says, that's how it goes. Likewise, whatever Jesus says about the matter, that's what it is. It's settled. So when, he, when Jesus says in John 16, be courageous, I've overcome the world, it's settled. And we should respond accordingly with courage. Your world may be falling apart, but you don't have to fall apart with it. You can't always control what happens to you or into what storms you may fly, but you do have control over how you respond. Responding to Jesus' presence and power in your life allows you to let go of your fear and replace it with peace. His peace. Doesn't mean that you won't have problems, it, but it does mean your problems won't have you. Relationships may falter, jobs may cease, health may decline, the economy may continue to dip and turn. But Jesus says, silence, be still. And you can rest comfortably on your cushion because he's got you in his hands. I want you to listen to what the book of Proverbs says as this is the very first chapter, the very first verses in the book of Proverbs, God's imploring us to trust and to listen to him. And the book starts off like this, come and listen to my counsel. I share my heart with you and make you wise. Now, that's the invitation, but next comes the warning. It says, I called you so often, but you wouldn't come. I reached out to you, but you paid no attention. You ignored my advice and rejected my correction. Now, that's what happens when we depend upon our peace or we depend upon our own reasoning. So what happens? What's the result? He says, when they cry for help, I will not answer. 
Though they anxiously search for me, they will not find me. For they hated knowledge and chose not to fear the Lord. They rejected my advice and paid no attention when I corrected them. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit. Now, interesting that we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says there's a bitter fruit of living their own way. You see, that's the imperfect peace. Choking on their own schemes. But then he concludes, okay, this is verse 8, Proverbs chapter 1. But here's a promise to all of us. If we listen, if we lean in, but to all who listen to me, they will live in peace. I think it's interesting that the writer chose peace there. He didn't choose, well, they'll live in comfort or they'll live in luxury. He says that they'll live in peace, untroubled by fear. You see, when fear tries to invade your border, you must battle this invader by establishing border guards. And the line of defense goes like this. Now, I'm just going to go through how we fight off fear so that peace can reside. So the first thing Scripture tells us is that we take every thought captive. You don't, you don't just allow your mind to think on whatever it wants to think on. Then you make every need known in prayer. You go to God in prayer and just say, God, this is what I'm dealing with. Number three, we praise and celebrate the victory. Jesus is one. You don't wait for the circumstance to change before you start giving him praise. Then you declare the promises of God over fear and uncertainty, which means you got to read your Bible. you got to know what God has to say about whatever situation you face. And finally, you replace that fearful thought with the peace of God. And we do that when we entrust the thing that we fear to God, and it's essential that we release our grip on it. We have to allow God's complete sovereignty to overwhelm the problem in his own time, in his own way, and then your soul will be at peace even in the midst of chaos. You know, there's so many scriptures in the Bible about peace and about dealing with struggles and worries and fears, so I'm, I'm not going to try to go through all of this. But what I will tell you is that if you're dealing with this, okay, and I, mean, I think it was so powerful what the Holy Spirit did at the end of worship as we begin to deal with hearts and begin to deal with unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness because those roots keep you from having perfect peace so some of the I'd use some of the scripture verses I have 82 scripture verses in this message <laughs> I'm not going to share them all but I have 82 references and, and let me just tell you in advance if you want to copy this message all you have to do is text me after service and I'll email it to you but when you feel overwhelmed okay the best thing to do is uh, to find a quiet place to pray, read the scripture out loud, listen to worship music. God wants all of us to live in that perfect peace. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then it goes on to say, you were called to peace. Once again, I want you to, under, to realize that he didn't say you were called to holiness. He didn't say you were called to perfection. He said you were called to peace. Philippians 4, 7 says, the peace of God which transcends all your understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Proverbs 16, 7 says, when the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way. In other words, when you're responding to the difficulties in life with the word of God, it says he causes even their enemies to make peace with them. 
And finally, Psalms 29, 11 says, The Lord gives strength to His people. The Lord blesses His people with peace. You see, people everywhere search for peace. They sing songs about it. They travel on pilgrimages to find it. They even wage war to protect it. Many wealthy, famous, and powerful people would trade everything for just one moment of peace. What they, what they often find, however, is the world's false peace, which is very different from the peace offered by Jesus. Jesus said, peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. So the world offers peace, but it's different. The peace offered by the world is an empty promise that can only bring temporary comfort. God's peace is a permanent peace offered by the only one who can be trusted to keep his word and heal our sin. The world's peace is fleeting and changes with circumstances. During times of prosperity, nations experience temporary peace. But when economies struggle or countries find themselves on the brink of war or, on the, or face social or political uncertainty, the peace of the world becomes a precarious thing. The world's peace is built on a weak foundation of compromise. And the world's peace ignores the root of the problem. When asked what's wrong with the world today, many people will point to volatile stock markets or corrupt governments or disappearing rainforest or poor diets or the lack of health care or broken families or overcrowded schools. The world tries to fix these problems by doing good. Things like feeding children, digging water wells, regulating markets, conserving wildlife, funding charter schools, thereby hoping to achieve a type of peace. The world's peace tries to fix the symptoms of sin but fails to see how the root of the problem is the sin disease itself. Something that can only be healed by Jesus, not by money, regulation, or reform. In contrast to the world's promise of peace, God's peace is permanent and firmly grounded in his word. God doesn't ignore our sin disease, he heals it. He makes it, making his peace a different kind of peace from what we get from the world. God's peace is permanent and secure. When circumstances are free of conflict, we enjoy momentary peace in this life. But when we face difficult relationships, health problems, financial crisis, the momentary quiet is disrupted and fear and anxiety tend to rule the day. You see, God offers peace in the midst of the chaos. And his peace doesn't change with the circumstances. It's secure in spite of the circumstances. I love this passage in Isaiah 54, 10. It says, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not de depart from you. I want you to see this now. And my covenant of, guess what word goes in there? Peace shall not be removed. In other words, it doesn't matter what's shaking around you. Your covenant of peace is secure. I have said these things to you, Jesus said, that in me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. In other words, things are going to be going on. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus is saying the peace that I use to be victorious in this life is the same peace I'm giving you to be victorious in this life. And you can look at the storm or you can look at any circumstances, even people that are getting ready to take your life, and you can be at peace. Don't be anxious for anything, Paul says in Philippians, but... In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. God's peace is built on the sure foundation of his word. In Psalms 119, 165, it says, Great peace have those who love your word. 
Nothing can make them stumble. In Isaiah 26, 3, one of the key verses I read earlier, it says, You keep in perfect peace those whose mind is stayed on you. Your mind's going to focus on something. The key to having perfect peace is to having your mind focused on God, His Word, His promises. God's peace is ours because Jesus heals the root of our sin. See, all religions other than true Christianity have one thing in common. They try to achieve peace with God by doing works and following rules. Christianity is different. In Christ, we're offered peace with God because we were who were once far off, it says in Ephesians 2, have been reconciled to God through Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' sacrifice addressed the root of the problem that the world ignores. By his death, he bridged the gap that sin inserted between us and God. He took the punishment for our sin. In exchange, he gives us peace. Not just internal peace or external peace. He gives us eternal peace. Isaiah 56, 3 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. That's a fancy word for sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's our tendency to sin the same sin over and over again. The chastisement or the beating that he took brought us peace. It says in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, for who has been made us both one and broken down in his body the dividing wall of hostility. While we experience eternal peace through reconciliation with God in Christ, we also have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because of him, we enjoy the blessing of peace in our daily lives, even when we find ourselves in the midst of turmoil. Whatever storms may be, whether they are health or financial or relational, sometimes it might seem like God's asleep in the boat. We find ourselves in a stormy conditions, and like the disciples, we all often want to say, Jesus, please wake up. I'm in a mess. I'm afraid. Do something. I'm not sure we're going to make it. It's precisely in those moments when we feel so weak and helpless that Jesus' power is most visible. See, God does some of his best work in those moments when we don't think he's working at all. Sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so that you'll discover he is the rock at the bottom. You're not in some hole or you're not in some pit. You're standing on the rock that is going to get you out of that pit. Sometimes God allows you to get into a situation only he can fix so that you'll see him fix it. And as a result, you'll grow in your faith as you experience and appreciate his power. Whatever the case, you can trust that his work is motivated by a heart of love for each of us. Scripture tells us that Jesus got up from his slumber, faced the storm, and spoke to the sea. Silence, be still. Two brief commands and the storm obeyed. The Hebrew word uses, a, the Hebrew Bible, excuse me, uses a familiar but significant word, shalom. It's the purest sense shalom means peace. The connotation is positive. That is that when someone says shalom or peace unto you, it doesn't mean I hope you don't get into any trouble today. It means I hope you have the highest good coming your way. You see, most people in our world don't understand peace as a positive conflict, a concept. 
All they know is the negative aspect of peace not being present as opposed to the positive concept of peace always being present. See, the biblical concept of peace does not focus on the absence of trouble. The biblical peace is unrelated to circumstances. It is the goodness of life that is is not touched by what happens on the outside. You may be in the midst of great trials and still have biblical peace. Paul said he could be content in any circumstance, and he demonstrated that when he had peace even in the jail in Philippi where he sang and remained confident that God was being gracious to him. And then when the opportunity arose, he communicated God's goodness to the Philippian jailer and brought him and his family to salvation. Likewise, James wrote about this when he said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. He said, Consider it all joy because your peace is not related by your circumstances. Your peace is related to your covenant. Where does a man find peace that's not just the absence of trouble, the kind of peace that cannot be affected by danger or sorrow. It's ironic in what is surely the most definitive discourse on peace in all of scripture comes from the Lord Jesus himself on the night that he was betrayed. He knew what he was facing, yet he still took time to comfort his disciples with a message of peace. In John chapter 14, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor be fearful. You see, the peace Jesus is speaking of enables believers to remain calm in the midst and uh, calm in the most wildly fearful circumstances. It enables them to hush a cry, steal a riot, rejoice in pain, endure a trial, and sing in the middle of suffering. This peace is never ruled by circumstances, but instead it affects and even overrules the circumstance you find yourself in. The New Testament speaks of two types of peace. The objective peace that has to do with your relationship with God and the subjective peace that has to do with your experience in life. The natural man lacks peace with God. We all come from a world fighting against God and because we're part of the rebellion that started with Adam and Eve. Romans 5.10 says we were enemies with God, we fought against God, and everything we did fought against his principles. But when we receive Jesus Christ, we cease being enemies of God, we make a truce with him, we come over to his side, the hostility is ended, Jesus Christ wrote the treaty with his blood on the cross. That treaty, that bond, that covenant of peace declares the objective fact that we are now at peace with God. That's what Paul means in Ephesians 6.15 when he calls the good news of salvation the gospel of peace. It is the gospel that makes a man who was at war with God to be at peace with him. This peace is objective. That is that it has nothing to do with how we feel or what we think it is an accomplished fact. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Our sins are forgiven, the rebellion ceases, the war is over, and we have peace with God. That was God's wonderful purpose of salvation. Colossians 1.20 says that Christ made peace through his blood on the cross. And although we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, 
engaging in all types of evil deeds, he's now reconciled us through his body to present us holy and blameless before God. The peace he speaks about here is subjective. In other words, experiential peace. It is tranquility of the soul, a settled positive peace that affects every circumstance of life. It is peace that is aggressive rather than being victimized by events. It is supernatural, permanent, positive, no side effects, divine tranquilizer. tranquilizer. This peace is the heart's calm after Calvary's storm. It is the firm conviction that he who spared not only his own son will also along with him give us all things. See, this is the peace that Paul speaks about in Philippians 4, 7, when he says the peace of God which surpasses our ability to comprehend will guard your heart and mind. You see, without peace standing guard, your mind will tend to think on things that make you fearful. The peace of God is not based on circumstances like the world's peace, so it doesn't always make sense to the carnal mind. Paul says it's a peace that surpasses our ability to understand. It doesn't seem reasonable that such peace could exist in the midst of problems and troubles Christians go through. But this is divine, supernatural peace that cannot be figured out on a human level. The word for guard in Philippians 4, 7 is not the word that means to, excuse me, is not the word that means to watch or to keep in prison. It's the word that's often used in a military sense, meaning to stand at a post and guard against the aggression of the enemy. See, when peace is on guard, the Christian has entered into an impregnable citadel from which nothing can dislodge him. The name of that fortress is Jesus, and the guard on duty is peace. See, the peace of God stands guard and keeps worry from eroding our hearts and unworthy thoughts from tearing up our minds. This is the kind of peace men really want. They want a peace that deals with the past, one where no longer do the strings of conscience dipped in the poison of former sins tear at you and torture your heart and mind. We want peace that governs the present so that we have no unsatisfied desires tearing at our hearts. And we want a peace that holds promise for the future where no foreboding fear of the unknown or dark tomorrow threatens us. And that's exactly the peace that God offers, where the guilt of the past is forgiven, the trials of the present are overcome, and where the future destiny is eternally secure. See, the peace of God is not obtainable by those who are not at peace with him. God alone brings the peace. Jesus said, Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Now, I want you to notice something. We tend to read scripture and we just, we just kind of keep going. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Maybe you've never thought about it before. What Jesus is promising each of us is his personal peace. If I went to Pastor Chris and I said, Pastor Chris, I'm going to give you my phone, Okay. Keep me on target. Um, he goes around and he says, hey, look at this new phone I got. Okay. Whose phone is it? Right. Jesus has given us his peace. 
his personal peace. It's the same deep, rich peace that stilled the hearts of, in the midst of the mockers, haters, murderers, and traitors, and everything else he faced on that night. He had a calm about him that was unnatural and non-human. In the midst of incomprehensible resistance and persecution, Jesus was calm, unfaltering. He was a rock. Those who knew him might have come to expect it, but you can imagine how it must have confounded his enemies and those who didn't know it to see someone so calm. When Jesus appeared before Pilate, he was so calm, so serene, so controlled, so at peace that Pilate became greatly disturbed. Pilate was so furious that Jesus was standing before him completely at peace that in a frenzy he said, do you not know that I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? Then, in perfect peace, Jesus replied, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. In other words, I'm not going to let your words affect my peace telling you there's a lesson there for all of us that's the kind of peace Jesus is talking about that's what the kind of peace he gives to us it's undistracted fearless complete trust it's so it's the source of our peace is Christ and the Holy Spirit is the giver of the peace he dispenses it as a gift you know in Galatians 5 our kind of key text for this series is Peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit. You may ask, if it's Christ's peace, why did the Holy Spirit give it? Well, let me take you to another passage of Scripture. John 16, 14 says this. He will take what is mine and he'll give it to you. So Jesus had already planned on giving us his personal peace. See, the only peace the world can know is shallow and unfulfilling. Most people's pursuit of peace is only an attempt to get away from the problems. That's why people seek peace through alcohol or drugs or other forms of escapism. The fact is that apart from God, there can be no real peace in the world. The false peace of putting your blinders on or taking a pill and going to bed and trying to forget it is fleeting and worthless. And yet people try desperately to hold on to this kind of superficial peace. It's a futile pursuit. Godless individuals can never know true peace. They might know momentary tranquility, a shallow feeling perhaps stimulated by a positive circumstance mixed with a lot of ignorance. But let me just tell you this. This is, this is so straightforward. If unsaved people knew the destiny that awaited them without God, the illusion of peace born out of ignorance would evaporate totally. People today live in a form of existential shock. They don't understand their own being. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they're going. And they don't know what to do when they get there. The world's peace doesn't exist. No individual without Christ Jesus can have true peace. All right. I'm, I'm editing. So much good stuff here. So let me just move ahead here. It says, normally anxiety, excuse me, let me just do this. Anxiety and turmoil seldom focus on present circumstances. 
Normally, anxiety is trouble borrowed from either the past or the future. So many people worry about things that might happen or other anxieties that come out of the past, but both the future and the past are under the care of God. He promises to supply all of our future need, and he's promised to forgive all of our past mistakes. Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 14, don't worry about tomorrow. And in reference, he's referring to yesterday as well. Each day has enough trouble on its own. He says, I'm giving you the peace of what you need for today. To have that supernatural peace available to each of us puts us under an obligation to rely on it, to lean on it. Colossians 3.15 is not a command to seek peace, but rather a plea to let the peace of Christ work in us. Each of us have this peace available to us. Now we have to let it rule. Isaiah 26, 3 again says, Perfect peace comes when we take our focus off the problem, off the trouble, and we put that, that focus constantly on God. In the midst of a society in which we are constantly bombarded with advertising and other worldly pleasures designed to get us to focus on our needs and problems, how can we keep our minds focused on Christ? The best way is by studying God's Word and allowing the Holy Spirit to teach us to help fix our hearts on the person of Christ. Most people who lack peace simply have not taken time to pursue it. God's peace comes to those with the personal discipline to stop in the midst of the storm and take time to seek Him. It is the condition of peace. Thank you. It is the condition of peace that we cease from life's activity to know Him. Sometimes we have peace but we like worry better. Worry, now listen to me. Worry makes us feel like we're doing something to fix the problem when the problem was never intended for you to fix to begin with. All right. All right. Let me just, I'm going to, give you this point i'm going to tell a short short story and then i'm going to give you five things that you can do to let peace reign you see in any circumstances i've learned paul says i've learned the secret to facing plenty or to be hungry to have abundance or need i can do all things through christ who strengthens me let me just tell you, the secret to contentment is simple. It doesn't require heroic acts of faith. To let the peace of God rule in our heart requires a childlike response from us. The secret is beautifully summed up in Proverbs 3, 5, where it just says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Could it really be that simple? Is it really that simple just to trust God? So simple but so revolutionary. God designed us to operate on trust. We are reasoning creatures made in God's image, but God did not make us with the same capacity to reason as Him. 
He didn't give us his capacities to contain all knowledge or wisdom. God designed us to trust him with whatever knowledge and wisdom and strength he provides. Now listen to me. And to trust his knowledge and wisdom and strength when ours reach its limits. You see, what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden is they broke trust with God by eating the forbidden fruit. And when they did this, they unhinged their reason from reality. And besides living in a world subject to futility, they had to deal with the overwhelming complexities of the knowledge of good and evil without the capacities of wisdom and knowledge and strength to adequately process. The story of redemptive history culminating in Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection is God undoing the catastrophe of the garden and restoring sinful humans to holiness and once again the capacity to trust in the Lord with all their heart. Trusting God is not easy, but it's not complex. Man, I have a good list of stuff here I could read. Oh. Let me just jump to the story, and then I'm going to give you those points. God intended for us to have peace in the midst of storms, but too often we want a storm-free life where his peace is no longer needed. We want God to stop the recurring storms. So let me tell you this story. A number of years ago, an art gallery ran a contest to see who could create a painting that best portrayed the idea of peace. There were many worthy submissions, a magnificent painting of a sun setting over a tranquil waters on a pristine beach, one depicting lust pastures of rolling green hills on a placid lake, Yet another submission was a beautiful landscape of freshly fallen snow in the mountains with a small log cabin glowing with the light of a warm fire within. Yet none of these peace-inspiring scenes won the prize. Instead, the most unlikely contender garnered first place. It was a painting depicting a storm with lightning flashing and winds blowing through the trees of a rocky cliff. But if you look closer, you could see why it was the winner. In the cleft of the rocks, there was a mother eagle, her wings spread out over her six sleeping children. It was the perfect essence of peace. See, God doesn't want to take you off the rocky cliff. He doesn't want to get you out of the storms. What he wants you to do is to trust that he's there with his arms over you. And no matter what happens in the storm, you're protected. Peace isn't the absence of storms in our life. There will always be storms. Peace is the ability to remain tranquil through the storms while taking shelter under the wings of the Lord. So let me just, I'm going to close with this, man. I think that clock's batteries are running too fast. All right? <laughs> let me give you five beliefs, all right? This will help. This is worth staying for. Through the years, I've discovered five essential beliefs for a peaceful heart. And so I challenge you to take a long, hard look at what you believe about God. Your peace is determined by the degree to which these truths are embedded in your soul. Belief number one, 
God is absolutely sovereign. Recognize and accepting the truth that God is sovereign over everything is vital to your inner peace. This means that nothing related to you is beyond his watchful eye and his loving care. Belief number two, God is your provider. From cover to cover, the Bible is, has a clear message that God is the one who provides for all of your needs. No need is too massive, too problematic, or too severe. The Bible tells us those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Belief number three, God made you the way you are for a purpose. See, there are many things about your life in which you have no control. You have to accept those things as part of God, of the way that God created you. Your race, your culture, your language, your nationality, your sex, and many attributes to your physical being are God's choices. He gave you talents, aptitudes, intelligence, personality, and spiritual gifts taken as a whole make you a unique person on this earth to, feel, to fulfill the plan he has for you. Belief number four, God has placed you where you belong. God created you for fellowship with himself and others. So you have to trust him to help you gain a strong sense of belonging to him and to provide a family of believers to whom you can belong. And belief number five, God has a plan for your fulfillment. You see, for real inner peace, a person needs to know that he or she is competent, capable, and skilled at doing something. There's a wonderful sense of peace that comes when you know that you're capable of putting in a good performance or doing a job that's pleasing to God. When you accept these five essential beliefs at the core of your being and trust God to work in you and on your behalf, inner peace will truly be yours. When you guard your mind and guard your heart, you're guarding his peace that is given to you by the Holy Spirit. None of us can fully exhaust our ability to think about the goodness and grace, greatness of God. Amen. So we have to allow his promises to fill our mind with what's virtuous and what's praiseworthy. So the subtitle, Where's My Pillow? What does real peace look like? It looks like Jesus asleep on a pillow, exhibiting full and complete trust in the God in the midst of the storm. You see, we can go through this life looking for peace and tranquility of life, or we can hope for peace in a world that's constantly divided, or we can pray for peace while we worry about tomorrow, or we can grab a pillow, find a comfortable spot in the midst of the storm, and take a nap. Because we are putting our full trust and confidence into one who said, let us go to the other side of the lake. Thank you.